world to come. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Marcel. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies who've called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. And that theme of being called out of darkness into the marvelous light, living in the light, is what John is going to have us focus on today in our passage of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. But before we begin, let's remind ourselves of where we've come from. We're in this new series of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, looking at what it means to live the authentic Christian life, to live together. And koinonia is the word that John uses, or that fellowship and the blessing that we receive from fellowship with and in the light. Now, John is giving the churches, whom he calls little children, guidance on what it means to live the authentic Christian life. We began this series actually at the end of 1st John, chapter 5, the end of that letter, because it's kind of the thesis statement that John gives the church. Little children, keep yourself from idols. We talked about how keeping ourselves from idols means keeping ourselves from God. And a lot of the commentary that we're going to receive in John's instructions have to do with, well, what does it mean to keep ourselves from idols? It's so important that Christians keep themselves from idols because as we saw in the first sermon, the more you worship something, the more you begin to resemble it. Remember that statement from biblical scholar G.K. Beale, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. If you missed that Sunday, the letter of the day was R. (laughs) What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. The long and short of it is, if you worship things in the created order, if you find all of your meaning and value and purpose, if you devote all of your time and talent and treasure to something or someone or some kind of activity, then you're going to begin to resemble that thing. And for Israel, who was in a a culture where idols were all around them, statues made of clay or stone, raw material that had eyes but couldn't see, ears but couldn't hear, mouths but couldn't speak. The Bible warns, you will become like them, blind and deaf and mute. Last week, we began to see, well, what does it look like for us to keep ourselves from idols? And John tells us in 1 John 1, 5, that because God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. It ought to be the Christian's pursuit of life to live in light and not in darkness. To keep yourself from idols is to keep yourself away from darkness. It's to keep yourself for the light. And it's fundamentally then an issue of uh, how you see yourself, how you perceive yourself, your identity. Are you one who dwells in darkness or are you one who dwells in light? Paul put it like this. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, for all of you speaking to the church are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. That's just not who we are, Paul says, as saints. Well, with all that, we could ask, what does this mean? What is darkness? Why is darkness contrasted against light? Is the authentic Christian life one that's supposed to provide illumination or inspiration as in contrast to darkness or ignorance? Yes, but that's not at the core of it. At the core of it, at the most basic definition of what it means to live the authentic Christian life, John gives us here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Read with me. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I don't know about you, but I find that this verse is two things at once. It's extremely convicting, but also extremely comforting. In fact, of all the verses we're gonna read in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, I find this one to be the most convicting and comforting at the same time. Because on the one hand, we learn John's definition for darkness. Like, what is darkness? John says darkness is sin. It's that cold absence of light, that flat, blind state of things. It's the creeping shadows of sin that come into our life. Importantly, and John's gonna develop this in the rest of the letter, darkness is not the opposite of light, but rather, darkness is the absence of light. This is a really important thing to grasp as we move on. Darkness is not the opposite of light, darkness is the absence of light. The Christian faith is not dualistic. There is not this eternal cosmic battle where good and evil are equally matched and they're locked in competition with each other. No. The reason John is picking up with this darkness and light metaphor is because when light is present, or when light is present, darkness has no other option but to yield to it. It has to move out of the way and give way to the light. Light is what is powerful. Darkness is weak, okay? So just, we're gonna develop that more later, but I think it's important and needs to be said here to understand why is John talking about light and darkness? For now, we can understand what John means. Darkness for John is sin. John also, did you notice, he's telling us why he's writing, and this is pretty common for John. If you remember back in his gospel in chapter 20, he tells us at the end of the gospel exactly why he's writing the things he's writing. He's talking about all of the incredible things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry, and he's wrapping up that story. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciple, which aren't written in this book, but these, in the, other words, the ones I have written, were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So if John had written his gospel so that we might believe, and in that belief, have life in his name, essentially what 1 John is doing for us is answering the question, well, if I do believe, and if I want to see that I have life in his name, what does that look like in my life? Here's the convicting part. John says, ah, well, if you've read the gospel and you believe, and you think you have life in Jesus' name, well, the way you know that you actually believe it is if there's no sin in your life. Notice how John phrases things in our passage this morning. He's writing, so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. I wanna focus in on just those words in 1 John 2, 1. So that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. John's very careful here. Notice he doesn't say, but when anyone sins. As if sin is an inevitability in your life. Did you notice that? He's not saying, hey, when you sin. He's saying, if. It's a condition. Conditional on your future, right? If anyone sin. As if not sinning is the default mode of the Christian life. If you're reading this for the first time and you hear the record scratch, that means that we've been conditioned to believe sin is inevitable. 
and, and it's got more power over us than John would like to see. What do you mean if we sin? I do sin. I thought that part of living in a fallen world was that sin was inevitable. I do sin, right? I'm forgiven. Isn't that true? And John says, of course you do, because what comes right after that? But if anyone does sin, what does he say? We have an advocate. But I don't, I don't want to get there yet. I think we need to feel the weight of, the, of the, the pressure that's being rested on our shoulders here in John's words. We can't just breeze past this point because what John is doing here is he's, he's allowing the Holy Spirit to check our attitude towards sin for the moment. John says, it's not right to believe that sin is inevitable in your life, at least the sin that you can control, that personal sin. Paul describes this kind of sin. He says to the letter, or he says to the church in Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. In other words, the categories of temptation that you experience in your life, somebody else has experienced that too. You're not alone, but you're not unique either. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Paul doesn't say when you're tempted that God may provide you a way of escape. He says, at every temptation, God provides a way out so that we're without excuse. Now, there is sin that you cannot control in this life. We live in a fallen world, and there's a general state of sin in creation. It's why creation groans in anticipation for the new heavens and the new earth. Disease, natural disaster, those types of things. And then there's the sin of others that affects you, and you don't have anything to do about it, right? There's oppression, there's injustice, there's betrayal, this violence. This is not the kind of sin John is speaking of here. He's speaking about the sin with which that you are tempted and had a clear exit out, but chose to abide in the idol and not in Christ. That's the kind of sin that John's talking about here. That sin, John says, has no place in the authentic Christian life. And if you deny this and you say, but, and you raise your hand and you try to question John, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So why do I need to listen to what's going to come out of your mouth in that, that explanation, right? You feel the weight? You should. John wants us to feel this pressure here for a moment. He wants us to, to raise our hand. He wants the, the little you know, lawyer in our heart to come to our defense and say like, it's not that bad, or no, they don't sin, or Spurgeon had a great line. He said something to the effect of like, the same kind of person who struggles to find sin in their life is the, same, is the, is the person that would struggle to find like water in the ocean. Like, it's there, you just need to open your eyes, right? But this isn't the way that it's meant to be, John says, at least not for a holy nation, a royal priesthood called out of darkness into marvelous light, a people that Jesus is making us as a church in a world, a new heavens and a new earth that he's recreating. The authentic Christian is not sinner, they're saint. And so the default mode of the authentic Christian life is not disobedience, but obedience. So why have you sinned? Well, John tells us implicitly it's because you kept yourself from idols and not for God. You're acting in ways that please the idols. You're asking the idols, what do you want from me? Rather than asking God, what do you want from me? And in doing so, you're becoming more and more like the idols and you're habituating yourself into a life where sin's not so bad anymore. 
You're becoming less and less like what God designed you to be, an image bearer of him, reflecting him to yourself and to your neighbors and to the world. So what should we do when we're faced with this kind of convicting reality that John is reminding us of? Simple. Don't deny your sin, crucify it. Don't deny the sin in your life, crucify it. You have to be open to conviction. And I think that that starts among many places, but especially kind of like our culture today, it starts with us, I guess, stopping our downplaying of sins. Like we have this tendency to say of sin, I made a mistake. No, mistakes are what the waitress did when she brought me Diet Pepsi instead of Diet Coke, right? That's a mistake. When we sin, you sin against an infinitely holy God. These are very different categories. And that mistake you made, quote unquote, is adding to the sorrow and the suffering of Christ on the cross. It's not something you say like, oops, sorry. Sin is something that we have to recognize separates us and kills us. Recognize that sin grieves the Holy Spirit, that it abuses Christ's sacrifice, that it breaks the Father's heart. And not only does it break his heart, but it breaks our fellowship. It breaks our fellowship with God. It breaks our fellowship with the apostles, as John said earlier in his letters. It pushes us away from fellowship with each other. It robs us of joy, the relationships that we have in the koinonia, the fellowship of the church. Causes us to retreat and hide just like Adam and Eve did to avoid the relationships we were built for. And in robbing us of joy, it fills us with sorrow and guilt. And so we must confess our sin, confess our sin to God in prayer. Confess it to yourself in your own meditation. Like recognize, see the man and woman in the mirror. Confess to a community, James says. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He doesn't say confess your sins that you may be forgiven. So only God can forgive, but where healing comes from is in confession of sin in community. And confess to the offended. And crucify your sin. Recognize that it's possible to do that because the Holy Spirit in you is more powerful than the spirit of the age, the spirit of the world. It's more, he's more powerful than the enemy. He's more, fallen, more powerful than your fallen flesh. Like the saint has no reason to say, I cannot overcome the desires of my body. My body is driving me to sin like God understands. Paul says, no, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I should disqualify myself. I I prefer the way the the King James translators put this. I keep under my body, not like here's my body, I'm gonna stay under it, but I keep my body under control, under Specifically, by bringing it into subjection. It's like a legal, a kingdom word. Paul views his body as a subject of him. You do what I say, and I say what God says. Because you, all of you, even all of your parts, are subject or citizens in the kingdom of God. And don't you know, Paul says in the same letter, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Let the Holy Spirit rule 
in your body. Let wisdom shape your behavior. Let other wise brothers and sisters in the Lord bear burdens with you like good counselors. And recognize that all of this is possible only because of Christ's crucifixion, his selfless sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world on the cross and to defeat death and mark the end of days for sin three days later in his resurrection. This is how we're forgiven. And that's exactly where John's going to draw our attention to next. So in this very heavy, convicting moment, what John is going to do is, you get it? You see the reality of sin? Not good, right? Here comes the comfort. If anyone does sin, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, how? Like, how can Jesus be an advocate for us? John answers, he, being Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here's what John is doing two things at the exact same time. Thing number one, he's raising the bar of conviction. He's, he's, he's you know, when Jesus tells the disciples, like, you need to be more perfect than the Pharisees. You need to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, right? John's doing that again. The church had forgotten it. The bar kept getting lower and lower and lower. And John's like, no, the bar needs to be up, unattainably high. He's raising the bar on conviction. He's showing us that the default mode of the authentic Christian life is obedience and holiness. And in that moment of despair, the record-scratching moment, when that weight really starts to settle in your soul, he then immediately wraps us in comfort. He reminds us that we have an advocate in the Son of God. So just as John is turning up the heat of conviction, he cools our anxiety with the advocacy of Christ. Which means your primary role is not sinner, it's saint, but that Christ's primary role is not accuser, it's advocate. John wants our identities Understood. He wants to make sure we understand our proper identities. You are not a sinner. You are a saint. But what happens when I sin? Good news, he's not your accuser. He's your advocate. We already have an accuser. And he has an expiration date. The advocate does not. The only reason Jesus can be our advocate, then, John says, is because he has made a propitiation for our sins. Right? That makes sense. Everybody woke up this morning and said, thank God for propitiation. Who did that? None of you. If you raised your hand, you are a theology nerd. What is propitiation? If you don't know, you're not alone. I, took a, I made a very uh, scholarly, qualitative poll on Twitter earlier this week for the people who feel sorry for me and follow me. And of the dozens of people that replied, dozens, Two dozen, in fact. <laughs> I have learned uh, that when it comes to propitiation, like, there's a little bit of confusion. According to this scientific Twitter poll, only 30% of the people who responded matched the right definition of propitiation with, with the definition offered. 67, so the vast majority of people, confused the term propitiation with expiation. And then one guy said, what in tarnation? <laughs> right? And I told that guy, Better watch out, because you're going to make the sermon. And I don't know if you didn't believe me or not, but here you are, guy. Watch out what you say. All right, I want to I explore these terms a little bit. 
because they're really important. In, in unlocking what propitiation means and what expiation means, it's gonna help us unlock what John is trying to say here because he's compacting a lot in a little. So stay with me here. Expiation, what is expiation? Expiation is the act of God to wipe away the penalty of sin. Expiation is the act of God to wipe away the penalty of sin. Expiation comes from a Latin word which means to atone, to make right, to pay back. I believe when the, when the Jews first translated the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew into Greek, they used the word John's using here in a similar way. Expiation, it's the word that uh, the author of Hebrews uses to describe atonement, as in like Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Therefore he, being Christ, had to be made like his brothers, a Jew, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered with temptation, he's been able to, uh, sorry, he able to help those who are being tempted. This propitiation is what comes as a result of expiation, that exchanging of the animal sacrifice, the blood of an animal for sin's penalty of a guilty people. It's the same thing that was foreshadowed in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, having sinned, clothed themselves in their own works to hide from God, to cover their sin, their nakedness. God says no, and he makes them skins of animals. Well, where did he get the skins of animals from? Something had to die. So all the way in Genesis 3, we, have, we see that sin is related to death. Another way you could put it is that expiation is God, through his son, making right what we, through our sin, made wrong. Expiation is God, through his son, making right what we, through our sin, made wrong. And our expiation, this moment of right-making, took place once for all on the cross at Golgotha, where Christ endured the precise exact amount of suffering that would expiate all sins that were ever laid on him, past, present, and future, until he returns again. In other words, all sins confessed and all sins forgiven. There isn't any more or any less of Christ's sacrifice that needs to occur for a complete expiation of sin to be accomplished. And with this expiation, with this sin forgiven, atoned for, your status before God is restored to whole. It's not just as if you never sinned, it's as if you had always obeyed and never sinned. It's as if you had done good like Jesus did. His works are counted toward you as if you had done it. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. That automatically leads to propitiation. And that's the word we're looking at here in John, right? Propitiation. What is propitiation? It's the act of turning away God's anger because of expiation. Propitiation follows expiation. And there's something super convenient in English if you forget. Don't worry. It's alphabetical. E comes before P, right? Expiation comes before propitiation. That's how I pass theology quizzes. It's the natural result of expiation. In fact, it's the inevitable result. 
If God is going to wipe away the penalty of sin, then his anger about sin and towards sin is going to be turned. Theologian N.T. Wright put it like this, you propitiate a person who is angry. You expiate a sin or a crime or a stain on your character. Importantly, only God himself can expiate and propitiate. There's no pastor, no prophet, no priest, no pope that can make what your sin, make right what your sin has made wrong. And there's no pastor or prophet or priest or pope who can convince God to quiet his anger toward your sin. God alone can do these two works. That's it. There are no other options. Well, if you're still like expiation, propitiation, I don't get these words, I don't like fancy seminary words. Okay, I get it. But recognize like theology informs how we understand God. And we have to allow God to inform how we understand theology. And one of the products of how we understand theology are the words that we sing. Whether you know it or not, if you sung this morning during worship, you sung about expiation and propitiation. Because a sinless savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. What is that? Expiation. God the just is satisfied to look at him and not on me. What is that? Propitiation. Another spot uh, where we sing about expiation and propitiation. They're on the cross where Jesus died. What's that? Expiation. The wrath of God was satisfied, propitiation. Now, some have argued, uh, including Wright, who we just quoted, that anger towards sin is not what John has in mind here. In fact, that's not really what the Bible has in mind. One scholar actually argued that divine wrath is beneath the grandeur of God. That's below him to be angry at sin. We get angry when we're slighted. But God doesn't get angry because he's infinite love. Remember, in Exodus 34, verse 6, we saw this incredible description of who God is. God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, how can that kind of a being be angry at sin? In fact, there's one Protestant denomination years ago requested the songwriter of In Christ Alone to change the lyrics. They said, hey, if you want to remain in our hymnal, you've got to change the lyrics of there on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, to till on that that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, is the love of God magnified on the cross? You bet, but why? Because his wrath has been satisfied. And so the writer of the song said, no, I'm not going to change that. And they're like, we're going to take it out of the hymnal. He's like, okay. Great. If, if you're preaching or believing in a God who has no anger towards sin, you're preaching and thinking about a God that doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's an idol. It's a false God. Because notice in Exodus 34, 6, the steadfast love of God is slow to anger, not sans anger. He's slow to his anger, not devoid of anger. You can't be slow to anger if there's not an anger for you to get at eventually. His grace and his mercy is the e-brake that's slowing him toward the inevitability of anger towards sin. The problem here, I think, is that we assume that God's wrath is some kind of divine temper tantrum because God's like us. No, he's not. God is not only love, 
God is also holy. And if he is infinitely and independently loved, then he is also infinitely and independently holy. And when that holiness encounters sin, it cannot abide it. It is impossible. It's like a divine allergic reaction. God's nature is holy, and it's wholly allergic to sin. If sin comes near it, he reacts to it. If God didn't, what kind of God would that be? If God could tolerate sin, then his holiness is not complete, and he's not God. Now, there's a problem we could do. We could swing this the complete opposite way, from left to right. Well, if that's how important wrath is, then God must be wrath. Wrath must be an attribute of God that has to be satisfied. We've gone too far, and I'll explain why. An attribute is that which must be present for something to be a thing, right? We all know that. Let me break it down. In order for something to be a triangle, or for a triangle to be a triangle, it must have three lines, no more, no less. The triangleness of triangularity is three-linedness, right? If we were to add just one line to a triangle, is it a triangle any longer? No, what does it become? A square or a rectangle or a rhombus? I am really pulling from Coco Melon all those hours of cocoa melon with my daughter right now, okay? But if you take a triangle and re you reduce it one line, what is it? I have no clue, it's just two lines chilling and talking to each other. It's not a shape, right? You get what I'm saying. An attribute is a thing that must necessarily be present for that thing to be a thing. No more, no less. So when we're talking about attributes of God, for God to be God, he must be infinite, independent, holy, love, sovereign, all-knowing, all of the omnis. If he is those, if, he's, if you take one of those things away, no longer God. So the question is, is wrath against sin an attribute of God? Is wrath against sin that something that is as foundational as one of the three lines to a triangle? Is it as foundational to his holiness and to his love? Well, let me ask a different question that gets to the answer. Before God created all things, before he created the cosmos, before he created angels, before demons were around, before heaven and earth, before sin ruined it all, when it was just the Father, just the Son, just the Holy Spirit, with whom was God angry? Was the Father disappointed in the Son's disobedience? No, and God forbid. Was the son disappointed and angry at the sin of the Holy Spirit? No, his name is the Holy Spirit. Wrath is not an attribute of God. Well, some people might say, maybe God is really angry with the future sin that he knows is coming. But the second you go that route, you're making God dependent on something he's going to do in the future and our failure. In other words, God is not God unless we fail. If you're willing to go that way, fine. Don't recommend it. Wrath is not an attribute of God. Instead, wrath is what happens when an attribute of God, holiness, encounters our sin. The expiation, the cross of Christ, is what happens when an attribute of God, love, defeats that sin. You need both God's holiness and his love active in their full capacities for the cross and his forgiveness to work.
Don't lessen the holiness of God. Never lessen the holiness of God. Because all you're doing is you're making the love of God out to be mockery, thin, incomplete. Look, we were not designed to sin, but in a fallen world, sin has become an inevitability in our experience. Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. But by faith, John tells us, the whole world has access to an advocate, one who has made right what our sin has made wrong. And belief in this, John says, is at the heart of the gospel. So we could ask, John, I'm with you. I totally agree. Here's my thing. I have no assurance that I actually believe those things. Or the assurance that I do have is flaky or flimsy. I'm concerned I don't actually believe this message that you're giving us. Well, John is a very good pastor, and he addresses that very issue in the next three verses. Starting in verse three, and by this we know that we have come to know him. In other words, John's saying, how do you know you believe the gospel? Here's how. Do you want assurance of your true belief in the gospel? Here's the evidence. And by this we know, how, or we know that we have come to know him. What's the answer? If we keep his commandments. Another record scratch. Let's let him continue. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Okay, so if you want assurance of faith that you believe the gospel, the answer to that is simple. To know if you believe in Christ, look to see if you behave like Christ. That doesn't help me, does it? <laughs> this is what John is saying. And remember, what's he doing? Two things at one time. He is raising the bar of conviction and wrapping that high bar of conviction and comfort. How do you know you believe in Christ? Look to see if you behave like Christ. What happens when you don't behave like Christ? What's John's answer? You have an advocate in Christ so you can behave like him. Not that... Behavior generates belief. Faith is not generated by our works. Instead, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Gifts aren't earned, they're given. Even your capacity to believe in God is a gift from him. Did you notice that? It is a gift from God. What is a gift from God? Faith. And so when John says keeping Christ's commandments is a, is a good work, he's saying if you keep Christ's commandments, you have evidence that you have received this good gift of faith that God has given you. Evidence of true living faith is the good works that you see in your life. Otherwise, you have a useless faith. Like that's the entire point to the letter of James. Remember when James said, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? If, if, you, if, there, if you have faith and true living faith, you will inevitably see good works. John Calvin likened the relationship between faith and good works as the relationship between the sun and heat. 
He says, faith can be no more separated from works than sun from its heat. And this is such a brilliant example. And actually, I think as we gain knowledge about what a star is and how they die, it, it gives us even keener insight. What is producing the heat in the sun? The sun is producing the heat, Kyle. Basic. We understand that. So then why do you as a Christian act like your heat, your good works, is producing your sun, your faith? Do you think the sun wonders, man, am I really a sun? How would I know if I was a sun? How much heat do I need to produce to continue being a sun? Is the heat I'm producing good enough to make me a sun? The sun doesn't wonder those things for a number of reasons. The sun just emanates heat. Like a true faith just emanates good works. And a sun that doesn't emanate heat, we call a dark star or a black hole. And it is endlessly concerned with itself, pulling everything into itself. Dead faith is the most selfish thing in the universe. But John doesn't want to just crush you with this text. He wants to encourage and strengthen your faith. He wants to remind you here of your advocacy in Christ is accessed through your abiding in him. Remember what, what John said in his gospel of Jesus, recording Jesus' teachings. In John 15, 5, he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, not the other way around. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, good works. So apart from me, you can do nothing. So abiding in Christ, who is our vine, is to draw strength from him, not from ourselves and not from others, from some other plant. It's to be connected to the vine, who is himself connected to God, who is himself God, who draws from the Father and the Spirit to give you life. But here's the objection. What happens if I can't abide? What happens if I can't remain? What happens if I can't hold on? Look, no tree branch is white-knuckling the tree, hoping that it can hold on to the tree. You ever walked under like a beautiful live oak and saw one of the branches like, man, I hope I can hold on. I hope one day I just don't let go and fall down. No, the branch is the product of the tree. No branch is begging the vine to remain. It just grows out of the vine. That's its, its natural home because that's where it pulls all of its nutrients from. In fact, the onus is on the tree to nourish the, the branch. That's why Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing because it's the vine's responsibility to nourish the branch. But what happens if the branch doesn't bear fruit? What happens if you sin? What does John say? My little children... I'm writing you these things so that you might not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Again, he's holding these two things in tension, the conviction of sin and the comfort of Christ's advocacy. So what does this mean for us practically? I think so often when it comes to faith and identity, our default is to turn to what we do in order to gain a status in Christ and maintain our status in Christ. What I want you to do right now is imagine somebody walked up to you and just point blank asked you, why are you a Christian? 
Answer that question quietly to yourself. Don't say it out loud. Why are you a Christian? So often our answers are something like this. Well, it's because I believe the gospel. Or I assent to Christ's law. I repented. I attend a church. I belong to a faith community. I do, or I believe, or I obey. John says that's great, but what happens if you don't? What happens when you struggle with faith and doubt? What happens when you wrestle with God's law, when you stop attending church because a pandemic's keeping you home? What happens when you sin? My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The gospel isn't about you, and it's not about what you do. It's about God and what he has done and what he is doing through you and what he will one day do. All of the good works that come from you are not actually from you. They're through you. And that's John's point. If you're seeing good works in your life, that means you're connected to God and he is using you to bring about good. These good works are not from you, they're through you. Because if they were from you, you'd get the glory and not him. The gospel is not about you. So when someone asks, why are you a Christian? Our answer has to involve something like this. Because from the foundation of the world, God loved me. Because he sent his son to die for my sins. Because he rose again to give me new life. Because his spirit regenerated my heart. Because God gave me the gift of faith because he allowed me to repent and turn to him, because he put his Holy Spirit in me and turned me from sinner to saint. And here's the great news, same can be true for you. Do you, sinner, serve God to get an identity? Or do you, saint, serve out of your identity? That is the implicit question being asked. And whenever we default Sorry, default, when it's the wrong word. Whenever we retreat to idolatry, which we're supposed to keep ourselves away from, whenever we become more like the idols, when we sin, if we sin, John says, return to your identity of saint, and the way you do so is to return to your advocate. Are you serving God to get an identity, or are you a saint who serves God out of your identity? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word for the fact that it can do two things at once, convict us of sin and yet comfort us with grace. Father, we thank you so much that it speaks truth about who you are and who we are in your relation. That you rightly identify in our lives the sin that separates us from you, but also magnifies your solution to our sin, which is our advocate, your son. And so, Father, we thank you for the propitiation of sin, that your anger towards our sin has been turned away so that we may enjoy the blessings and the fruit of being a saint who, if we sin, has an advocate with your son. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.